I'm Trevor Cummings, and these are my thoughts on money. Hello, and welcome to the Thoughts on Money podcast, what we like to call Tom. I am Trevor Cummings, your host of the podcast and your author of the Thoughts on Money blog. And you don't even have to guess who my guest is today, because it's none other than Mr. Sean Latimer. Hello. My favorite guest. I say that every time. Appreciate that, yeah. You know what's so funny? So I'm moving this weekend, and uh, one of the movers that was helping us out, he asked me where I'm from. And I said to him, I said, I'm from Napa. And he gave me kind of a blank look. And then I said, oh, I'm, I'm from the Bay Area, uh, Northern California. And I did it in that order. And then he kind of made a joke that he said, everybody from Northern California, when you ask them where they're from, they'll never tell you the city. They just say they're from Northern California. Yeah, it's like this large area that covers everything. Well, yeah, I think it's because, I mean, I grew up there. There's probably a lot of cities people would be like, Merced, you have to help me out. I don't know where that yeah. is. That is true, though, because I, I spent some time up there, and I, I noticed that there's, like, pockets. You know, you, you I lived in the East Bay, so you say, you know, they say the Bay Area, and they're like, you go, oh, where? And you go, oh, East Bay, Walnut Creek. And like, oh, yeah, I know that. And they go, and then they say, like, Sacramento, and I'm like, I don't know if that's the Bay Area, but, yeah, I guess no, that counts. <laughs> same thing happens to me because I don't feel like a lot of people know the area. So both of my grandparents grew up in San Francisco and my parents, so sometimes they'll be like, oh, like, I'm from, like, the San Francisco Bay Area. And then they'll be like, where? And I'll say Napa. Napa they're, they're like, wait, wait that's not the Bay Area? <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, well, So you're, okay. you're one of those people. Yes, <laughs> I guess. I fell right into the joke. But one of the ways I introed this article was uh, there is two very distinct ways you can drive to Northern California. Uh, have you mm. driven both? Nope. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes. So you can take Pacific Coast Highway, uh, and you can go all the way up 1011, uh, and you can get to the Bay Area. Uh, you, can get to, you can get to Northern California, yeah. uh, or you can take the five freeway. Now, these two paths couldn't be any different. True. The five freeway is like desert, boring, straight. Smells like manure the entire yes. way. Yes. And the other way is beautiful. Yes. Windy roads at times. Lots of traffic. Totally. And it'll take you, I, I, again, Another I wish, hour? way more than that. Really? I, so I, I should have looked it up on GPS before, and I'm going to take a total guess, but I'm guessing that if one route, you know, if I was going to Napa, maybe it takes me seven hours, right? Uh, the other option is probably like 11 hours. That's so crazy. It's a huge difference in drive time. So it, it brings me to this place. If somebody said, hey, what's the best way to drive to, and we'll stick with our theme, Northern California, what's the answer? What are you looking for? You looking for speed or are you yeah, looking for true. beauty? That's a really good point. It's interesting. I thought you were going a different direction with your analogy. You know, where you, you what's the point of a GPS? It's to find like the most efficient, maybe not safest, but the fastest, most efficient way to get there. And I thought you were going to tie it in with like advice and investment management. And but oh, let's re-record that. I yeah, like that I'm better. way off. No, 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 no. I, li- I like your way. No, it's just this, it's this idea that I think if somebody asked me that question, because I, I am somebody who values like you, you're probably like me. Like every time we take a trip, I'm like, oh, last because I go up to visit my family. Yeah. Last time we made it in this much time, we got to beat that time. You know what I mean? We're only stopping once. Well, and we have small children, so yeah, the fastest way is normally the right answer. <laughs> exactly, but then there are people that like want to stop and smell the roses and like i can't even express how beautiful that other yeah. drive is like if you're going to um 
uh, all the, the that central coast. Yeah, you and stop everything. at Pismo for lunch or something. It's yeah. beautiful. Yeah, yeah. I think Big Sur is one of the most beautiful places I've ever been. But the right answer uh, is we give in finance a lot. Is it depends. What are your objectives? Um, what I wanted to do today is I wanted to talk about portfolio design, and I wanted to do something where we oversimplify portfolio design. Now, when you oversimplify something, here's what I like about it. It gives you great foundation and context for how something works. What it doesn't do is it doesn't give you the exact roadmap to go out and do it on your own. So with an oversimplification, you got to give us grace to say, hey, this is a building block. We're going to lay the foundation, and then we're going to show you how you would layer from here. Again, not an intent to create a, a do-it-yourself investor, but to give somebody the context of how portfolio design works. Again, last thing I'll say on that, the reason I want to do that is because I come across a lot of people where I see a portfolio and I say, hey, I can't really see the theme here or kind of how this all threads together. Why don't you describe it to me? And usually uh, there's not a, a clear and concise answer for that. It's funny too because the people that say, uh, you know, yeah, have you ever been asked like, "Oh, can you just send me your uh, like a, a model allocation or or what it'll probably look like?" And I go, "No, you know, there's a lot that goes into it. It's not just a risk survey. It's uh, a risk survey, a conversation, you know, a balance sheet, a discussion of what the goals are and how we're going to accomplish that. And all those things go together into the design of the portfolio. It's not just a grab it off the rack, send it your way, and there you go. And those same people that may say, oh, it's so easy, if you would ask them about their own portfolio, they'd be tripping over their own feet and go, oh, I don't remember when I bought this. Or, oh, I, I heard this stock tip on TV and I thought it was a good buy. Uh, oh, it went down. I'm going to wait till it goes back and then I'm going to do something else. And you just kind of get that feeling like, wait, if it's so easy, why are you all over the place? You know, The weird difference is, because uh, I love how you're describing it, and we're, we're talking about road trips and things like that. Uh, if, if you gave me all car parts and I sit in the garage I can put them together, but I couldn't put them together. No, you can't. <laughs> I mean, I could. I mean, I'm saying I could put it together, but not functioning. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so well, you put it all together and wouldn't turn on. <laughs> but that's my point is with a portfolio, you can put it all together and it'll do something. Uh, it might not be the exact desired result that you want, but it's very different than building a car. You won't start the car. The car will tell you very clearly if you didn't do it right. Um, we don't get that point with a portfolio. You go buy some esoteric investments and obscure things that might not be appropriate to your objective. That thing will still drive. Yeah. It just might not drive in the direction that you want it to. And that's the other thing, too, is uh, I think it's a slippery slope. Like, oh, it's only a couple investments or it's a small percentage of the allocation. And uh, it, that's probably true. If you invested, you know, two or to 5% of your your portfolio in something that's obscure or maybe was uh, ended up being a loser, is that going to make or break your financial plan? Maybe not. But I could see it being a slippery slope where you start doing that more often. And then next thing you know, you're self-directed and nothing really makes sense. Yeah, and I can use a real-life scenario because what you said to me is people requesting like a, an allocation or design really early. It gives me anxiety yeah. because I feel so stuck because I'm like, man, you want an answer and I want to give you an answer because I don't want to sidestep yeah. and try to get out of it. So I've tried to get better like, okay, just try to answer the questions um, and, and try to be accommodative because – you know, we are at the end of the day in, in some level in, in service roles. And you and I, we've interacted with people at restaurants or uh, clothing stores. And 
how frustrating can it be if you're like, please just answer my question? Right. Uh, so I've tried to do that, but I had an interaction recently where uh, I had a good conversation. I got an idea, and then I said, hey, it's probably best from here that we schedule another call. Um, that way I can really digest what your objectives are. Uh, and then from there, collaboratively, we can start to put the pieces together and see if we can make a portfolio that be fitting for what you're um, basically trying to achieve. And his response was like, we talked for like an hour today. I think you kind of know everything about me. Why don't you just go ahead and make a version 1.0 and send it over to me? And I was like, okay. So I got off the call and I was like, again, that anxiety feeling is like, I don't really know. But I had an, a general idea that this was going to be, you know, a portion of a larger puzzle piece. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I also knew that it was it was a smaller portion. So anything I designed, the attribution would be a little bit diluted based on everything else. Yeah. Does it makes sense when I'm saying that? 100%. So I was like, oh, okay, you know, we have some unique strategies I think could fit really good. And I thought, hey, and I was really intentional when I emailed back, here's an idea. And I didn't want it to be a proposal or a recommendation. Like, this is just an idea. Like, this is raw clay, and then let's go ahead and work it together. And uh, his response, which I respect this person, was like, hey, reviewed what you sent over, the proposal. It wasn't a proposal. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, just way more risk than my wife and I were intending on taking it. And I'm like, Wait a dick. Like I just like fully walked into a trap. Like yeah. I, I have no idea what the, the risks that you guys were looking to take. I, I don't have all the details I need. Yeah, and, and that's a good way to look at it is when you do put something on paper or or even an email, I find myself all the time saying, you know, don't hold my feet to the fire on this. This is a sample, this is an idea, this might not be what it actually looks like. And and then I think sometimes people they don't get frustrated, but then they're like, All right, well, no, I, I want to see what it'll actually look like. And then a part of me is like, great, then we need to have more conversations and you need to become a client. <laughs> like, and it forces you to want to like make all these analogies, which it's like, I know that's like my natural bent. So yeah. I get scared to do that. But I, I'm just thinking like somebody walks in a room and they're like, hey, make me a suit. And they're like, I'm like, can I take your measurements? And they're like, no, 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 just like eyeball it. Yeah. Get a general idea. Let me try yours on. (laughs) And you're like, okay. So the person leaves, you go make a suit, and they come back trying to like, this doesn't fit good. This is awful. Yeah. And you're you're like, like, wait, I got to take your measurements. So again, the, the purpose of this was like, okay, foundationally, uh, let's start at square one. Let's assume in this hypothetical world we're making that there's only two investments. Let's say government treasuries and let's say U.S. stocks. Uh, that's a very, very good starting point. Uh, now, let's imagine that you have a, a dial and you could toggle to have more treasuries or you could have more stocks uh, and you would toggle that dial to meet what your particular objectives are. We said on previous podcasts uh, you know, and I've kind of committed it to memory that investors want stability and growth. They can have one, but they can't have both. Mm-hmm. Um, why we're bifurcating these two investments and kind of giving this visual of having a dial is those treasuries will represent stability, but they won't typically over long periods give impressive returns. Now, again, impressive returns is descriptive. So uh, that could it's in the eye of the beholder and what you think that means. I'm just saying traditionally that is not where somebody would go uh, that wanted a large compounding growth over a long time period. Right. If the total return expectation for stocks is going to be, you know, seven, eight, nine percent on average, and uh, the total return for treasuries, depending on the time, is going to be less. Now, a lot of things could happen that could change that, but you would uh, typically look at a portfolio and expect that to be the more conservative or the reserves portion of the portfolio, not necessarily using it for a total return. 
Exactly. And uh, if, uh, again, with analogies, I'm sorry, I can help it, but if, if, uh, if the meal is too spicy, then don't put as much spice in it, right? Uh, settle down on the Tabasco. The stalks are going to be the Tabasco. Um, they're going to give you that bite and that push and that growth that you're looking for, uh, but they're not going to give you stability. So again, at square one, if you go to the, the table to build out your portfolio and you just have those two ingredients, great place to start. Now, obviously, uh, we spend a lot of time with our investment team doing a lot of other type of investments, everything from commercial mortgages to real estate to uh, stocks in the emerging markets, all that. I would say that those are layering components, that you would layer on those two foundational pieces. But we're going to start there. So when we talk about this drive to Northern California, we, we said that the, the outcomes of these uh, paths are going to be very different. Uh, one is going to give you speed and one is going to give you beauty. Uh, now we're talking about a different bifurcation where one is going to give you stability and one is going to give you growth. It will be natural for you to say that you want both, but you can't have that. Mm-hmm. So now let's, let's turn that dial all the way to one side. Let's say we build a 100% stock portfolio in this hypothetical world. And again, I'm going to assign rates of return here because uh, not uh, to tell you this is predictive, but I want to, again, build context and have a conversation. So if stocks over the last 100 years have averaged in the 9% range, I think you were quoting, that's you know within the right zip code. Uh, let's say for this exercise, current environment, everything, we'll, we'll toggle that down. Let's say that stocks are going to do 7%. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then let's say bonds are going to do 3.5%. Uh, it makes for really easy math. Yeah. Um, so again, we dialed up and we said 100% stocks. Now somebody looks at that portfolio and they say, whoa, based on how the drawdown of this portfolio, right? That in ugly markets, think like 2008, this thing went down 50%. Somebody's immediate reaction might be, I don't want that. I can't endure that. Then what is the answer? Well, at that moment, there's not a lot, a lot of options. You kind of have to just ride it out. Okay, fair enough. I'm saying <laughs> on the design phase, if they're like, hey, that drawdown doesn't, uh, it doesn't fit what I believe I could endure, there really is only one answer. To add more bonds. Add more bonds, right? Yeah. You go over to the treasuries and you add treasuries. So again, get that visual of that dial. You just start dialing the other way. Now, I'm not big on designing portfolios solely on tolerance mm-hmm. uh, because I think sometimes to try to think through your tolerance can be difficult. I also think having an advisor on your side can actually expand your tolerance. But again, that basic portfolio is just that. Uh, And as you take that dial and you turn it to the right to go towards more treasuries in the portfolio, you naturally are dialing down the expected rate of return as well. Sometimes it's not necessarily just a risk tolerance preference, but also need. Um, I, I've had times where people say, oh, well, I'd prefer the portfolio to only go down 10 or 12% per year. And I go, okay, perfect. Well, then you're going to have to own about half the portfolio in some sort of fixed income investment. And it's not going to generate enough income for your financial plan. So the plan won't be successful. And, and, th- and then they go, oh, okay, maybe I, I can handle a little bit more volatility. Well, you kind of have to. So, yeah, and that's why I'm right there with you. I've I use that language of objective driven. If your primary objective is to meet the needs of your financial plan, that's where you got to start. Right. And then what ends up being the outcome is what is the drawdown of that portfolio that matches that financial plan? And yes, at the end of the day, then you have to sign off on it and say you're okay with it. But starting with the drawdown is not very helpful because I'll tell you what drawdown I want. I want a 0% yeah. drawdown with really juicy, attractive returns. That sounds great. It's just not in the cards. No. 
that's like in your analogy taking like a spaceship to san francisco elon musk might <laughs> maybe, do that for maybe us. Yeah. yeah yeah hyperloop's coming back yeah but uh they, it, it is a good conversation and i i was thinking about it too i feel bad for sometimes for clients who aren't well versed in you know finance maybe they haven't been involved in the stock market or they've been working for 20 or 30 years and they never really paid attention to the 401k and now they're trying to make these big decisions with a larger nest egg and they're like wow i've been spending my whole life saving this money and now i'm filling out this little toggle survey where i have to tell them how to invest the money and they don't know and so i think the education piece is really important because maybe the tolerance is just misunderstanding how the investments will behave right and maybe setting that expectation and making it clear that the advisor is going to be there kind of along the way to, to guide them through that journey. I think that's m- the most important part. Yeah, I agree with you. And, and on top of that, I, I think you got to use, has- you got to use history as a, a little bit of a roadmap. Uh, the, the drawdown, and I keep using that term. All I'm saying is that when a, a stock hits a peak price um, and then you measure it to the, the bottom, like uh, of it going down, we call that like a trough or a drawdown. So when you look at those drawdowns for 2008, that peak to trough was, it was in the range of 50%. So I'm going to make it really simple for somebody. Um, obviously, bonds were, were had a positive performance there, so um, that can be offsetting a little bit. But in kind of the real simple form, if you don't want, if you want a 25% drawdown and stocks have drawn down 50%, then you got to have half the portfolio in treasuries, which for some people, they're like, ah, they like balk at that. But again, if you're building it on drawdowns, you have to understand that. Easy to balk at it after, you know, the last 12 years being very friendly besides the COVID moment. And I say moment because it happened so fast. I think people were like, oh, it was a blip on the radar. No big deal. Totally. And I I think that's the easiest way to start doing the math when somebody's built on this idea. Because even our, uh, you know, our proxy that we use internally as like a, we call it an allocation summary, you know, it it probably has, it's the cousin of an an investment policy statement, very similar. But one of the numbers we highlight on there is drawdowns. Um, So, you know, sometimes folks look at that when a portfolio is designed based on a financial plan and they're like, yeah, no way on that. And I'm like, very easy to fix that. Mm Mm-hmm. All we do is we take this cup of boring bonds, these treasuries, and we just start pouring it in and we start pulling out anything that we would define as a risk asset. Yeah, and then and, they look at the expected return. They're like, wait, why did this go down? And you're like, well. <laughs> yes. And we know we, we know this idea, which is, this is what's interesting to me, is we understand in our everyday language of this relationship between risk and reward. But for some reason, it's not as intuitive to think about that dial and toggling back and forth. That's true. And it's interesting as if rates continue to go up, it makes treasuries and bonds, you know, a little bit more appealing, you know, in a low interest rate environment, it was really easy to be like, oh, bonds have lost their purpose. You know, it's not going to pace with inflation. It's not even necessarily going to preserve capital, like we saw at the beginning of this year. So, you know, what do you do? Do you still have 60-40 portfolios? And you had a lot of people kind of shying away from that. And maybe they're doing it more based off their balance sheet or, or things that I think are a good idea. But if they're not prepared for the volatility that comes with it, then it, it's a mute point. Yeah. And the 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 next step that the Bonsa Group adds on in regards to trying to be great practitioners is we start with that same foundation of kind of this idea of stocks and bonds. Um, and as we build out a portfolio where that dial feels like it's getting pretty heavy handed in stocks, 
then we go back to kind of rule number one in finances. Like, are we living up to this diversification commitment? Mm-hmm. And that is the, the most simple way to describe where alternatives come in, right? Because then you're saying, hey, I've toggled down the bond allocation, which leaves a gap that I could fill with stocks, but um, that it against, goes against my like uh, intuitive advisor mind of, wow, am I putting all my eggs in one basket? Uh, and that's where we're looking at that gap and saying, okay, are there other ways to generate return, not to remove risk, to change risk? Mm-hmm. Um, and again, don't want to use a big math word here, but we're looking for uh, investments that don't exactly correlate to the stock market. Uh, so we, we've we had great success or, or we've used investments, uh, things like real estate or things like private loans or things like hedged strategies that you can fill that gap with and you can create a little bit of a smoother ride for the client, uh, diluting some of that volatility and helping them to kind of stay the course. And just to add on top of that, uh, also keep in mind when there are very volatile markets um, and markets are throwing up and we're seeing an, o- an overreaction and everything's selling off, there are times where no asset class is really immune, you know, where uh, the correlation over time is important. But also keep in mind that when everything is in the red, don't be surprised if everything's in the red. Yeah, you're exactly right. And we use that term in finance, uh, all correlations go to one, yeah. right? When yeah. the uh, proverbial hits the fan, um, all things go down uh, sequentially. Now, in those times, you can find multiple uh, historical periods where those treasuries were uh, safe havens. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know in the, we use the term flight to safety. Uh, and that has actually done exactly what we expected it to do. So yes, uh, investing is difficult. Uh, but again, when we start with this oversimplification, uh, not to get to a final result, but to contextually begin to understand how does design work, it is very helpful. Uh, the other place that I'll go is that we started with these assumptions. Again, uh, for compliance reasons, <laughs> these are just hypothetical assumptions. But if we work under this idea of, you know, stocks doing 7% and bonds doing 35 and both being volatile along the way. Um, it's very easy to do math in our head. The rule of 72, right? The rule of mm-hmm. 72 says that we can roughly understand how long it takes an investment to double its value by taking the number 72 and dividing it by the rate of return. 72 divided by 7, very easy math, somewhere around 10. So a, a 7% investment will double its value in about 10 years. What does it mean if it's a 3.5% investment? It'll double its value in 20 years. And that, for me, is is a great place to start with a client on the design side, just to say, Sean, you and I, we're we're included in this group. We only have so many 20-year time periods left in our life, right? Uh, It's limited. We have more 10-year periods than we do 20-year periods. So we start to get this idea that this doubling and this concept of compounding and the financial freedom that it builds, that is why people take risk, right? It, it, it is to, again, it's it's why probably more people take the five freeway than the scenic route. Uh, it, it's to get to that efficiency of the doubling and compounding and getting to your destination quicker so you can go enjoy it. 
So for me, I, I love the scenic route, right? And it, it might be something uh, nostalgic that I would do with my wife. But yeah, when you have little kids, you want to get to grandma and grandpa a, a, as quick as you can uh, in a very safe manner. So it starts to give this idea of how these investments are very different and they serve very different purposes. But that doubling for me, I, I remember when I first had that conversation with the client, I'm like, oh, that, that actually just makes sense to me. Like you were having the aha moment with them. Totally, because the difference between 20 years and, and 10 years, we could do it math and say it's double. No, no, it's a long time. It's a really long time. Uh, if I take Sean 20 years ago, that's a lot different than Sean 10 years ago. This is true. So when we start to think about investments that have the capacity or the expectation that they could double in value in shorter time periods, you can imagine the impact that has on your portfolio. Yeah, and if you think about it, markets are for the bold. Um, you, you see twice the return, you go, oh, yeah, I, I want that. Remember, that, that meal is going to be spicy, so be, be ready for some volatility along the way. Yeah, and I, I would assume all of us have a natural bent uh, to be risk-adverse. Like, if, if, if we just throw words out there, uh, people always pick the middle of the road, right? So yeah. you're like, are you conservative, moderate, or aggressive? They're like, I am moderate. Or if you give them more choices, I am moderate conservative. Right. Uh, so we do have a natural uh, bent to want to lean into things that uh, feel like they have more safety. And the weird thing is that sometimes finance can flip the world upside down. Uh, even though you can take short-term volatility, which we define as risk, sometimes it can create safety in your financial plan in the future. Because what happens when things compound at faster rates, it means that they're growing faster than your lifestyle and your expenses, which it creates a lot more of margin of safety for, for future, Sean. I'm just thinking about these conversations that we have with people and how, uh, in theory, it makes perfect sense. But during those stressful times, it, you almost have to, we've talked about this on your podcast in the past, you almost have to check tape, you know, where that person goes, oh, yeah, I'm completely comfortable with volatility. Game film, right? Yep. And then you go back and you go, hey, weren't you the same one in March of 2020 who said we need, we need to make a change? This time's different. Let's go to cash. And and they're like, oh, I don't, I don't remember that. You know, maybe I emailed you and you're like, oh, no, I have it right here. And and sometimes it, it, I'm not I'm saying it tongue in cheek, but it just shows that even if you're an experienced investor, comfortable with volatility, you can kind of get shaky time to time. You're exactly right. You, or go ahead. I don't really know where I'm going with that, but I was just thinking about it. Like it's so much easier said than done, you know? Yeah, it, it totally is. And that's why – but the great thing we have in, in the role that we sit in, we are convincing who every day? Ourselves. Yeah. Uh, we are getting deeper in our convictions and our beliefs about this stuff. And, and this cross-pollinates to other parts of life. I, One of our good friends who's an advisor here at the Bunsen Group, Drew Dill, I spent 30 minutes on the phone with him this morning because I knew he would uh, he would have sympathy for me. Uh, he just moved recently, yeah. so his house is all in boxes. My house is all in boxes. And he asked me, hey, how are you doing? And I'm like, hey, looking for the word to choose, overwhelmed, anxious, <laughs> flustered, all these things. And I kind of expressed like little kids moving in boxes, all this. And he's like, totally. And he, he kind of exp- expressed what's going on for him. And my advice to myself, as I said it out loud to him, I said, I just have to stop and kind of meditate on compounding, knowing that this idea that uh, when I go home today, it's going to look a lot like the house did yesterday. But if I close my eyes and open them one year later, two years later, you wanna, yeah, it'll yeah, be watered on the bridge. Exactly. And the progress it will make, because like 
spider webs everywhere yeah. and uh, <laughs> stuff in the backyard that needs to be fixed and uh, crown molding that's cracking and all this. I'm like, ah, and I'm a, a checklist person, so I make this list. The list can cause anxiety. Yeah. But then I'm like, wait, wait, I remember how compounding works. Uh, it, it, it's like watching paint dry. Like if you, or, or like a, a watch pot never boils. Like if you, if you try to focus on it too much in the short term, uh, it's, it's not going to be exciting. But when you look at it over long periods, uh, compounding is amazing. You know what the problem is, right? It's me. That's good. It's because you're missing basketball. Yes, exactly. It's adding all this stress and anxiety. If you just played basketball again, you'll be back. Okay. I take two days off of basketball and all of a sudden this guy. <laughs> the shame will continue. Don't yeah. worry. <laughs> no. So, I mean, that was the concept of this article and this podcast was let's oversimplify. Let's get context and look at a portfolio in its most simple fashion with stocks and treasuries. Get that imagery of, of turning the dial one way or the other and understanding that as I turn it one way, I'm going to add volatility and returns, expected returns. I turn it the other way. I'm going to add stability and reduce expected returns. Yes, humans love stability. But as you lower those expected returns, just think about the way compounding works. Uh, something that might double in value in 10 years now might take 20 years. So if you're an impatient person, uh, let me encourage you to take the path where the doubling in value uh, is a more efficient route Uh the other thing I'll add there, and I probably can't fully unpack it on this podcast, but if somebody's willing to endure that volatility and accept that over time periods, there is safety on the back half. Uh, and, and let's think about it in, in simple terms. Uh, if somebody had, again, I'm just making up a number, a million dollars today, uh, and they're spending $50,000 a year, absolutely making this up. We, we know that's they're spending 5% of the portfolio. Now, let's say that person's still working and they don't have to withdraw when that person gets that portfolio to $2 million, what are their withdrawal rates doing? They're shrinking. Mm -hmm. When he gets to $3 million. So as the, the balance sheet or nest egg can grow at a, a, a greater trajectory than the, the expenses or the lifestyle, the gap you're creating there, that's a safety margin. That's a, that's a safety gap you're creating. And it's also a legacy gap that you then get to plan any of the, all these things in your financial plan around charity and next generation and things that you would never fathom that you could do, but they took patience, endurance, and time to be able to create that. And, and again, I, I want to unpack that in a future podcast better, but for me, running so many financial plans, I'm starting to understand that, oh, that is a benefit when you can get expected rate of returns a little bit higher. That was a really good point. And you're right. Let's not open up that can of worms. But Sean wants to end the podcast. <laughs> no. I'm looking forward to talking about that one on a future podcast. On a future podcast. So we will uh, end there. We'll ask that you rate the podcast five stars are preferred. All comments are welcome. As always, you can email either Sean or Trevor. It is a very simple email. Tom, T-O-M, at thebonsagroup.com. We look forward to your questions, comments, or ideas on future podcasts uh, that we can discuss for you. But of course, we'll be back next week with more of our Thoughts on Money. The Bonson Group is registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC, and with Hightower Advisors, LLC, a registered investment advisor with the SEC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there is no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is not indicative of current or future 
future performance and is not a guarantee. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data and information referenced herein are from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analysis, prices, or other information contained in this research is provided as general market commentary. It does not constitute investment advice. The team and Hightower shall not in any way be liable for claims and make no expressed or implied representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the data and other information, or for statements or errors contained in or omissions from the obtained data and information referenced herein. The data and information are provided as of the date referenced. Such data and information are subject to change without notice. This podcast was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the team and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors, LLC, or any of its affiliates. Hightower Advisors do not provide tax or legal advice. This material was not intended or written to be used or presented to any entity as tax advice or tax information. Tax laws vary based on the client's individual circumstances and can change at any time without notice. Clients are urged to consult their tax or legal advisor before establishing a retirement plan.